this is a great Sorry. time to ask you all what are your yeah. opinions yeah. about traditional versus tech, right? Um, I think Melanie's brought a few points out, and I want to I want to try and understand what are the benefits of both, and what are possibly the drawbacks of both as well. I I think as you say, there are benefits. Every, to every good, every great strength becomes a weakness at some point, and you know I think that's why what's so important is multimodal. To be honest with you, um, and that's even if it, whether it's online, whether it's in you know in the physical world, uh, and a lot expect uh, a lot depends on how the user experience. I hate to use that term because I don't like it when people call me a user. But um, <laughs> I, I guess I would say when the gamer participant learner is, is doing this. So let me give you an example. There was a fad a really long time ago that experiential learning in a corporate setting meant that you would, um, you would jump off a, a, a telephone pole, you know, and yeah. you would do, um, uh, this magical maze that still exists, I just saw it online, is they're still doing the magical maze for feedback or, you know, blind trust fall. Or you, you do all these outward bound types of activities. And um, it wouldn't surprise uh, surprise you that I was always the first one to go off the, uh, the pole because I figured everybody was worried so much about themselves, they weren't paying any attention to me, and I could make a fool of myself without any worry and get it all over with. So, um, and yet there are others who would practically be in tears, the last person down the line, not, you know, never wanting to do this. And so they learned absolutely nothing that entire time they were spent just worrying about yeah. how everyone was gonna think about them, right? <laughs> and 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 so, what connection did that make? What did they gain out of this process? Nothing, um, yeah. you know. And so I think, um, you know, that, that connection. What skill did it teach you? Could have taught you bravery, mm. but I believe fundamentally that people, you're, it's it's just easier increasing yeah. what the skill level that people of things that people already do fairly well or yeah. enjoy or at least have some tendency toward proclivity toward and really build the heck out of those and you know i've been trying for for decades you know to understand nuclear physics but guess what um, I'm probably not going to. I, I'll get incrementally better. You know, I'll understand about fusion or I'll understand about black holes, but I won't be able to really work in that field. You see, yeah. so I think that there's a, uh, there is the, the reality that we are not all great at everything. But mm. what is important is for us to have the humility, first of all, to know that and to be able to ask for help and not see that as being shameful, which in our society too often, it is viewed as shameful. People don't wanna disappoint their parents, for example, or they don't wanna disappoint the teacher. But a friend, well, that's a little different, you know? Um, I think people, when you're a kid, you sort of understand one hand 
you, I may help you this time, but you'll probably help me another time. They understand that a little better. And it also caused me to shift, uh, and this, this is really important to me, in, in judging performance appraisals and, and setting up performance management systems at work. The way that most companies view um, employee development, which is usually part of one's you know, performance review, is what you've done to improve yourself and to increase your own skills. Whereas the definition I prefer to inculcate is how did I improve my own skills as well as those of others? So that you have this notion that I learn from you, you learn from me, and to, it's a, a little bit aligned to uh, Melanie's term of citizenship, that mm. I am responsible for the learning of other people, not to let my coworkers, you know, throw them under the bus or, uh, you know, yep. just not share or let them fall and, and, and I'll be some kind of big hero. You know, yeah. so I think that that citizenship, and I would have liked to add another C, which is climate, but uh, that's for another discussion. Yeah, I, um, I I would like your personal opinion also about what you think. What would you pick if you had to do traditional versus tech at this point? Um, would you have chosen different if it was ten years earlier? Would you choose oh, different ten years I'm ahead? I'm a geek. <laughs> I'm a geek. Uh, I tell you, I like any, I, I go for multi. I yeah. love, I am very big, you know, I, 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 I what is the phrase? I, mm, what, I practice what I preach. Uh, there are certain things that I learn better by reading because mm. on one hand, I'm a visual and I can remember things that are in the written word decades later, later, where I read it, where I saw it, what it looked like, whether it's on the right side of the book and the end of the book and the middle of the book. There yeah. are other things where I want more, I need to have it auditory. In particular, for me, though a lot of those things are conceptual, yeah. where I'm trying to understand a body of information or learn a language, it doesn't yeah. really help me necessarily to read it because I'm usually when you talk to people, you know, usually yeah. they're not showing it to you in a book. They're, you know, speaking. Yeah. So um, so then it's that. Uh, so if I'm trying to do something that requires me to be able to help someone else or to learn something else or to see yeah. how somebody else feels, then yeah. I want to be able to see you. See, yeah. so I believe that what we have to do is have an increased appreciation for what is the what is it that we're trying to accomplish and through what medium is that best done. Yeah. And to be able to be broad enough to be a multi-learn. I don't know what the term would be, Melanie. You have the 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 masters in education, the multi-learner, you know, that you should be able to learn in any or as many different modes as possible. I, I hope I haven't misspoken against curriculum design, Mel. No, you haven't. The, the goal of multiple intelligence is, is you start with the known. So you start with what it is that they are strongest in, in hopes of pushing a child to develop an intelligence. 
in an area where they're weaker. So for instance, if you're a visual, right, and that's what you lean on, and that's the mode you go to, the idea is you would push them into experiences where they start with the visual and you would bring in the auditory. So they start uh -huh. to develop that intelligence. Uh -huh. um, I will say, I, I definitely agree with you about the whole, you know, one size doesn't fit all. And I think I just go back to the idea of it depends on where you are in the learning process when it comes to what which one you pick. Uh -huh. Yeah. As a Valid teacher, point. You know, as a teacher, I feel like in the process of teaching, I prefer digital because my I watch that com that computer. I will walk around my classroom with the computer as the kids are playing. And as soon as I see that a student has missed two in a row, I pull the kid and I yep. immediately address it. We have a little small group. We work together. We review the concept. We talk it out five, ten minutes. I fix the issue and I send them back. So yeah. when you think about the actual heart of teaching, the digital is the way to go for me personally, because you just get that information so quickly and it's so readily available. You know exactly what the problem was. You can even usually see on a lot of these softwares, you know, what was the question they actually missed. So you can yeah. even use that to help in that little small group remediation. Yeah. But I also find value in kids creating board games and playing them. So that they actually have a purpose you know when i was um a, you know back in the classroom a fun thing to do is at the beginning of a unit let the students play the games of the students the previous year had made and let yeah. them start to experience what content they're about to learn because then they're going to go into the learning process with questions they're going to be like well when we were playing this game this is what i saw can we talk about it and yes we can and they're immediately engaged in the learning process I also really like at the end having an actual time where they get to play the game they created. Plus, mm -hmm. you get very creative games when they've been exposed to what did the students from last year make? What do these digital games look like? And then they create this product and you're like, holy cow, like this is amazing. Just the, the amount of thought, the, the little pieces that they put into it. And then they can tell you a million reasons why they created those little icons, you know, for, for them to move or why were the cards that color? And they start going into a deeper level of understanding because everything had symbolism, everything had meaning to them. You know, their game takes on a whole di like different realm in a way. And then they get really excited when they donate it to my classroom and they have the idea of, oh, so students are gonna play this next year. And they get so proud, they sign their name on it. Like, it's like, it's, this thing that they are so proud and honored to know is going to help a kid in the future. So it's just a matter of having the right thing at the right time. Um, you know, one size doesn't fit all. Board games have a, a part where, you know, you want them to have that. And then you also want them to be on the computer during the experience so I can teach from the data in the moment. So then what you're saying to some extent is uh, in the moment, is a lot about teaching and gaming could be reinforcement, learning, uh, uh, correction, practice, sort of that kind of thing, which you probably don't have a whole lot of time to do in a classroom. I mean, you don't have a lot of time to do it with 30, but when you start to notice that these three kids have this issue right now, yeah. You can do it right then and there and then send them back and pull the next three that are having an issue. And most of these softwares are designed where you'll see right away 
they got two wrong in a row. Or they might even have on the computer screen something that comes up that says, ask your teacher for help. So these, these programs are not meant to just go put a kid on a computer and occupy yourself. They are meant for the kid to keep practicing what they've learned, kind of like how the old handouts were where you'd go and you'd like, you know, do the math problems or, you know, you'd use your vocabulary. And it's kind of replaced it because it's giving them some experience of like something that's fun um, while they're using the content. But at the same time, it still has that piece in there of your teacher is still there. If you don't know something, you don't feel comfortable with it. You don't know how to do this raise your hand and ask for help, which is very difficult for a lot of students to do in these days. But if they notice that their peers are all occupied, they start to feel a little bit more comfortable be like, hey, I need some help on this because they don't feel like 30 other eyes are staring at them. Yeah. You know, So it opens the door for that opportunity also for that remediation. So, so really what I'm getting out of this is there's a lot of purposeful use of technology. It's not just, you know, giving kids computers and be like, hey, go crazy, or giving them uh, board games and be like, that's the only thing you're going to do. There's a lot of, um, you know, tweaking with technology, making sure that their screen time is, is not going overboard. They're controlled within that. But going back to something that you said was so important was the kinesthetic aspect of learning, uh, the social interactions, the communication that's still coming through through the through this blended process almost where technology is being leveraged just because of its superior superiority in certain things while um, you know when you need to give the physical aspect with games or game based learning in the physical space you're still leveraging that to ensure that kids you know still mingle about do things that are required of them in the real world that's that's wonderful yeah yeah i i really think that's right it's it's a combination but again um a lot of times uh, especially when you know now it seems so easy anybody can build an app and uh you know whatever and that's all great but the reality is that all everyone guess what you know five years ten years down the road and we'll all be you know all of that facility with developing an application doesn't mean I'm going to give you a million dollars or whatever we'll need then five million dollars and say go build me a, a system you know so I think that the point I'm trying to make is that the one of the drawbacks of technology is it gives you a false sense of knowledge because you know how to uh, manipulate you know how to um, you know you you know how to manipulate i don't know what what the right word is to say exactly but just because you're you have facility with the tool doesn't yeah. necessarily mean you're learning the content it's um i think that's really important for people to remember that it, it facility doesn't always mean deep knowledge that you can then apply in other situations which is goes back to what you were talking about earlier melanie but you know, I also want to. I also just want to make the point, though, when you would hand a handout to a student, right? Like you think back to the old like dittos. I gave you a piece of paper. You're going to show me what you learned. Just because they know how to write, doesn't yeah. mean that they actually understand the content of what you're asking them. So it's the same thing on the computer. It hasn't changed. And I think part of the problem that some teachers experience 
um, frustration when they try to introduce games in the classroom is because they don't understand their role. It's, you know, you can't go and put the kid on the computer and expect that they're going to figure it out on their own. You still have an important role as the teacher to monitor, make sure that you're tracking their progress, and then pull them and remediate. Otherwise, the kid's going to get frustrated and it's going to become a whole thing and it's not worth it. You just catch them when they're struggling, help them fix the error, and then you send them back. So let me ask you a question, Melanie. Within the teach um, education curriculum, are is there a like within management curriculum, you can easily graduate without having a class in technology? Hard to imagine, but yet true. Is, how how does that how does a teacher learn how to incorporate these things? Is there maybe you could speak to that a little bit? I will say, um, I'm not sure internationally, but I know in the States, it is very division based. So currently I'm working for a division inside of Virginia um, that it we rely heavily on them to teach us any, we call it PD, so professional development. They have to give us professional development on any technology that they would like us to incorporate. But oftentimes, you know, the professional development isn't differentiated to the need of the teacher. So like there might be a teacher who is strong with technology and can play around and figure it out and, and will just soar, right? And then we also have teachers right now who they don't know what control V means. You know, they don't know the basic copy paste. You know, they struggle with, you know, just scrolling on the laptop. They, they feel like they still have to go down to the scroll bar, you know, and so it, just the basic navigating is an issue. So it's difficult because there isn't really a one size fits all, but a lot of divisions are trying to make it a one size fits all. And so we're not really helping teachers feel solid in all of the different facets of technology that's out there. That's why you also, it's interesting because the Matthews effect I feel like applies here again, because you'll have those teachers who they know that technology is useful and they will go and teach themselves. They will find resources that are out there. There's a lot that will pay out of their own pocket to have subscriptions um, because they know the value of it. And then there's others where even though the division has put money into paying for so software, they don't feel comfortable with it. So they don't use it at all. And they stick with the paper pencil, very traditional lens of teaching. So it's hard because even with the division, even if you provide that professional development, unless it's mandated that you're using it, there's no guarantee that a teacher who isn't comfortable or confident with the technology will incorporate it. Would you see the same issue with uh, games, board games that teachers need to be taught how to implement that in the curriculum or do you, is that easier? Yes. Um, so board games for the the teachers that struggle with technology would be easier because they understand you know it's using you know construction paper and crayons and markers and they may, might feel more comfortable with it but it doesn't mean that they're going to be having the kids create the games for the right purpose um you know sometimes they don't understand why they're doing games you know i mentioned earlier a lot of teachers feel that by gamifying everything, we're not a, we're not teaching kids how to deal with boredom. And unfortunately, you know, this is a generalization. However, it's one that I've noticed quite a bit is that the, 
the teacher who struggles with technology and ends up not using it is also the one who keeps proclamating that we need to teach kids how to deal with boredom instead of recognizing that there's a time and there's a place to develop yeah. that skill in kids. But that's not the way that you start new content. We want kids to love school. We want kids to be lifelong learners. And if we're forcing them to be bored every single day, you are likely to lead to kids dropping out and kids that are not going to continue their education beyond that 12th grade if they make it there. Uh, and, yeah. and it's sad because, you know, we want them to be lifelong learners. I mean, I'm a lifelong learner. I'm constantly learning. In this panel alone, I've already learned so much from all, each of you. So, you know, to, it's one of those things where it's hard because I understand sometimes teachers being afraid of using something that they're not comfortable with. But if yeah. we're not challenging ourselves to go outside of our comfort zone, then our students are restricted by it as well. And that's not fair to them. We're, we're yeah. affecting their entire life by something that we're just not comfortable with trying. Yeah. In, in India, depending on which curriculum uh, the school is following, they have something called as a math lab in the school. So every week, certain hours are dedicated towards the math lab where they either get to play games or create their own games. Um, and certain schools follow that system. Uh, some of them don't have this because also uh, their main agenda is, I mean, the, the number of children are also a lot, like it's uh, above 50, 60, sometimes 80. So you may not be able to either have that many products or execute something like this in your school. Uh -huh. I'm, I want to go to one of the points that both of you all mentioned earlier uh, about how proficiency in something might not translate into actual understanding of that. Professor Ann mentioned something about how if I'm good with a software, it need not mean that I can do something else. Or Melanie, you mentioned about how just because I can read or write does not mean I can do something else that is provided to me. How difficult is it to give these measurable outcomes, um, you know, whether it's game-based learning or otherwise, in the traditional classroom, in current classrooms, and also in the workspace? So I want, I, I know Melanie would be a much better place to answer how a classroom would be able to, you know, how a teacher would be able to measure these outcomes, let's say using games, while uh, Professor Anne might be much, uh, have a better understanding. <laughs> Yeah. Melanie, why don't you go first with the classroom? So in the classroom, what I really like with the, the digital tools is that they give you, honestly, a percentage or they'll even you typically break it down by each question. And you can really quantify this is the number of questions using this part of the skill that they were doing well with. But what I noticed here, let's say it's a, a reading program, right? What I noticed in the ones that they got wrong they all seem to have this letter or this word part. And so they must be struggling with that. So when I go to reteach it with them, I know exactly what I need to tailor that instruction to. Okay, so it helps with the differentiation. I think that it just, it depends on the, the teacher's willingness to stop and to actually analyze the data. A lot of these programs give you so much that for a lot of teachers, they feel overwhelmed by it. And so they, yeah. they just don't know how to how to navigate it, how to deal with it. And so they end up looking just at a percentage of, you know, how many did the questions did they get right, which is not really yeah. the way to go, because you want to be looking for not necessarily the potential that they got right, but what was common with what they got wrong, because yeah. that is where I'm going to find my next teachable moment. 
on on the work side, I, I like to say that metrics is the death of innovation. When, because just by definition, since whenever you're innovating, you're really not quite certain as to which, whether you're going, you know, what what the end result will be. Yeah. So, but that doesn't mean that you can't figure out different points of when will I know that I'm sort of headed in the right direction and keep going or yeah, that yeah. I should stop and ask am I headed in the wrong direction and say yeah. maybe I'm looking at the situation incorrectly sort of the way Melanie was maybe maybe what was true before isn't true in this situation and that yeah. I should really make a tweak but continue going or you know what is likely to cause uh, some in, unintended consequence that I didn't think of beforehand that actually could bring the entire organization down and we should stop it immediately. You know, so I think that um, uh, there's there's a couple things I want to say. One is that um, we often let managers or supervisors take a pass on this because we do uh, we've gotten into the habit of telling people what to do yeah. rather, and, that, and we call that teaching. Let me explain <laughs> it to you. Let me tell you what to do. When it would be much more effective to hear the person tell you how they're going to get started, what they're going to do, and, and be able to ask them, oh, if you, if you as the manager see that, you know, that may not work out so well, or you even falsely believe that it yeah, yeah. may not work so, out so well. You say, how do you see that happening? And just in the talking it through part, people learn that in a yeah. way is, you don't want to call it gamification, but in a way it is. You're anticipating um, the next steps and you start to teach or you start to look for feedback once you know the person's clear next step they've already you feel pretty confident that they know what they're doing to a certain point and then you yeah. can stop and see okay what did you learn what yeah. would you do differently the second mistake we make is as um we save a lot more time by the way if we just ask people how they would go about doing it rather than trying to tell them where it, there's no question they will not retain that information and will leave. And I don't know anybody who actually ever learns that way. Or worse yet, if the, te if the, if the manager grabs it from them and says, here, let me, let me start, and then hands you the paperback and tells you to go finish it on your own. And that yeah. is how most managers do it. Or they have this notion that don't come to me with a problem if you don't have a solution. Well, I don't know about you, but any parent asking their child, don't come to me if you have a problem unless you have a solution. What is the likelihood of them coming forward? You know, not, there's not much incentive there. So not to make it analogous that you are as a worker are, you know, that you have a parental relationship there, but it doesn't exactly, you know, make people really warm and fuzzy. So instead, they just pretend like it didn't happen and they hope nobody important finds out before they can either fix it or somebody's been promoted or 
you know, they forgot about it or something, you know. And I speak so, for myself. I speak yeah. for myself. My my hand would still be stuck in the cookie jar if that yeah, was the case. Yeah, there you go. So. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and it's true for, for many people, you know. And so I think that from my point of view, I, I really I don't like it. Uh, and I know that many consultants, I can hear them going, oh, my gosh, what the heck is she saying? But, you know, it just does not work. You're, if we have to begin with treating adults in a workplace as if they are adults who manage to get to work, navigating their lives, especially during COVID. My goodness, if people can't figure out problem solving skills in this environment, then, you know, really, um, what yeah. can we expect? So I think we don't give people enough credit and that I have found personally, you know, as someone who's, uh, you know, being, been in a very senior role in an organization is that often when that kind of thing happens, or if you ask managers, when was the last time somebody came to you with a problem without a solution and there are no hands that go up, um, you know, uh, sometimes you have to ask what, maybe we have too many people too busy doing nothing. Um, and, 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 you know, they, or they, 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 they don't have the, pro, the um, you know, it's not helping them to learn, which is what we're talking about here. When people can learn, you increase their capacity and its capacity to build the organization, which should be the measuring stone, not your share price. It should be what is the value of our organization to be, and what is, how resilient are we? How relevant yeah. can we continue to be? These are the yeah. things that build a company, not share price. Yeah. I, I understand that, you know, that there are many people who would disagree with me, but I, I really think in this world that we're living in, that resilience and relevance and, and having people who we, we excite enough, we trust enough as adults who want to have meaningful purpose and, and, and to, to really move the ball forward, those are the people we want working with us, not somebody who knows how to cope with boredom, which, by the way, half of American uh, employees are doing when they have to quickly flip from the their games or their you know online ordering to something else. I mean, we see this every day, um, and so we know it's happening, and and that's you know that can't be a good thing um, globally, you know, for the economy, and certainly not at a personal level. Yeah. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, I think I think that did. Um, I, I, I want to bring another point that Sajid and I have been discussing so much about um, whether role playing in all of this does help, right? Like we see it with kids, um, an exciting activity that we do. Uh, I'm sure Melanie must have tried it quite a bit there, but we find that kids are quite attracted to, they don't really get the opportunity to do that is we allow them to be the teacher in some of our activities. So for example, mm -hmm. um, if to to see whether they've understood a mathematical concept we kind of give them this assessment sheet made by this mock third grade student and we go like hey why don't you be the teacher and why don't you see what kind of errors has been made is this correct is this wrong so now we're not just assessing them to see whether you know they've they're getting things right or wrong but we're trying to understand whether they've got the ability to to decipher okay, is this concept actually being applied? Is it being applied in the right manner? 
is it actually comprehensive enough um, to work? Um, do you think something like that um, qualifies as game-based learning, first of all? Um, second, do you think it's more applicable even in the workplace? Uh, because I know you made that distinction between adults and kids. But, you know, let's say if an employee was told that, hey, you think of it from your boss's perspective or from your manager's perspective. Um, if they made these decisions, do you agree with them? Do you not agree with them? Um, not just does it give them life skills, but also makes them a little empathetic. Hey, now I know how difficult it is to, to be the teacher almost. So what, what are your thoughts about that? Okay, yeah, I'll, uh, because I think uh, the focus will like to transition yeah. to kids. So I'll tell you what happens when these kids grow up. Um, there, there are two things that uh, I've done that were uh, considered to be very, really uh, the, fir the first time that, that this was done in a corporation. So I did uh, two different things. One was in 1990. I developed a management curriculum that we, it was a giant case study. So it was a giant game, but of course in 1990, it was not automated at all. It was in effect a board game in a way. And what we did is we took our level, we hired instead of an, uh, in, in, instead of a curriculum designer, we hired a novelist. And the novelist made up a story yeah. about this company called Federated, which of course was mimicking our exact organization. And our characters were from the level of manager, director, assistant vice president, vice president. Yeah. And depending on who you were, what your role is, you got to see and live the world as, you know, that person's boss. But everybody knew who all these people were and actually thought they were, you know, real. I mean, that was the whole idea. And so if you then graduated up, you would see the role birth of having somebody doing it to you and having it done to you and, and, yeah. and sort of you but you were still in that same world but you saw problems from different points of view so it seemed terribly important and you were very angry that the managers didn't pay any attention I mean the vice president didn't pay any attention to when you were a manager you know eventually you got to see why because in yeah. their view it was not nearly as important, let's say. Yeah. So this um, was very effective because it put people into situations where they, just because a novelist wrote it, they could hear things that made them sound like they really were in yeah. this company. I then translated using a very similar technique in 19, flash forward to 1995 when I introduced um, diversity training. And uh, I can tell you that we had many flops, years of flops on how to do diversity training well. And, um, but I, I was, uh, eventually I learned the do's and the don'ts of doing the right kind of gaming and the wrong kind from a role perspective. 
Um, so what we ended up doing is we were the first company who brought in um, SAG, you know, the um, uh, union uh, yeah. professional actors. Most of them were actually were Broadway actors or they were on sitcoms or uh, uh, SUV or, you know, the, they were familiar faces. So I actually did worry a bit that people would know them from like a soap commercial or something. But as it turned out, uh, we, we could use them. We, what we did is we improvised. And so everything was improvised. So it was very difficult as the trainer. But the idea was that um, we were heavily, we all knew the actors, all were people who, again, in one situation, they would play a subordinate. In another situation, they'd be a peer. In another situation, they might be someone's boss. So you yeah, get yeah. to actually see, and you're, and you, and what happened was, I, as the facilitator, would be out of the view, but I would tell actor number one to go to this person and ask them this question, hmm. and people would be immediately engaged, of course. Yeah. And then when they got finished with that, or I wanted them to come back, I'd sort of send actor number two in, and they would yeah. go and ask a question based on what just happened with actor number one and come off. So you could see where this would happen for 45 minutes or so, and everybody stayed in character. We eventually did this, or we went through every level of the organization, including CEO and direct reports. Wow. So talk about being gutsy. Now you know why I'd be one to jump off of that uh, off of that uh, pole. But anyway, um, what happened was people could observe, not only empathize, but you could say, did anyone notice how people responded to Richard? And yeah. people would say yes. The first person said, sit down, calm down. And this yeah. was an African-American male, no matter how small, we eventually had to find the smallest little unassuming guy we could possibly find. And yet even that, the managers would tell him to calm down and sit down. So where else could you learn or have that moment and really see that this is what was happening? It was extremely powerful or women yeah. who took off time because their kids were sick and people would say, well, what kind of mother are you to yeah. leave your kid at home, you know, when they have asthma or whatever. So, so that's why when we say board games, it's more like, I think of it as experiential learning in the truest sense of the word, where when you have to take on a different role, I think that is incredibly important whether you're in communication in the workplace, you're solving a problem, no matter what, I always suggest that the employee try to understand it first from the manager's perspective, the manager from the employee, and then have the meeting. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I think about where they end up with you, right? And, um, Thanks. you know, when they're, when they're, when they're going into like preschool and kindergarten, they have no clue who they're going to be when they grow up. Yeah. I mean, I've dealt with sixth, seventh and eighth graders who have no clue who they are. You know, they're dealing with issues of identity. And so role play, 
and that's what we call it um mm -hmm. when they get the chance to to just pretend that they're anybody else that develops their identity yeah. so it's one of the the foundations of what happens when students are you know in recess when students go to daycare i mean some of the first toys that you get a toddler are like the little play sets where they get to pretend that they're a cook in a kitchen or they get to dress up like a fireman um, and they get to pretend that they're someone someone else well in school it's like we kind of take that away but that's so valuable in giving them this opportunity to see who are they and figure out where do they fit in this world? I have given students this opportunity before where they get the opportunity to pretend that they're a teacher. And what's so powerful about it is some of the things that you were talking about where they do get to notice the, the common errors. And so they're correcting those mistakes. It definitely is the other lens of looking through um, the, the learning process. If they can look at a piece of paper and identify where somebody went wrong, it means they really yeah. understand it. They're very solid in it. But what's also yeah. nice about that experience is like like you were talking about earlier about observations. I mean, here they're able to observe where do most people go wrong so that when they're going through the process again of practicing it, they get to recognize, OK, wait, this is that moment. This is pivotal. This is where I saw yeah. tons of people made mistakes. So let me make sure that I slow down and I check it so that observation yeah. changes how they then process through the information when they're ready to go ahead and practice more. It also does develop that empathy skill um, where they understand what the other people were able to experience. And as a young kid, it's important to develop that empathy in them and to be able to recognize and step out of themselves for a minute and pretend that they're someone else. Because when they go into middle school and they're having conflict with other people, the first thing that we ask them is, right, but how do you think the other individual felt? And so role play again has developed the skill for them to be able to step out of themselves and to look at their their actions and how it impacted other people. And that yeah. conflict resolution, I'm sure, you know, continues into the business world where if you cannot stop what you're doing and see how your your behavior impacts other people on your team or your department. I mean, this yeah. this is just every day. I go to the grocery store and I can tell that there's some individuals who haven't learned this piece of empathy and being able to recognize, you know, what they're doing impacts me. And thank yeah. goodness I, I was raised properly to know how to deal with it when it happens. But but it's that conflict resolution piece that that's so important when they become older. And it all stems from the ability to role play as a kid, yeah. giving them those we opportunities. Just, we were just talking about this few days back, like uh, for example, Japan, right? For the first few years in schooling, they don't teach uh, academics. Rather, they focus on uh, uh, life skills. They focus on moral values. Uh, that's a beautiful thing, and that's my that's where my next question is going towards. How important do you think is uh, teaching uh, life skills, moral values, and even soft skills uh, right there? young uh, like right in their younger age uh, and then because then that makes professor Anne's life slightly easier i think yeah so when it comes to those soft skills i think that they're essential if we're not teaching them the kids don't know them it's not it, they're not intrinsic you have to show students how you have to model it first of all so that that requires thought and energy to think about yeah. how am i going to present myself in my classroom and how am i going to show students what this looks like 
but also giving kids opportunities to practice. And just like we were talking about before, when it comes to these soft skills, you also want to give them opportunities to recognize where could they have done better. So it's giving them that feedback, yeah. just like you would do with reading and writing and math and all the other contents. Sometimes we forget yeah. to get feedback, specific feedback on how students are doing with all of these other things that we want them to develop as well. Uh, I think that some teachers get nervous when it comes to teaching soft skills only because it's not part of our curriculum. Um, so in the state, yeah. it, it's not something that's, that's written out and is explicit. So it's okay. hard, it's more of you have to go and figure out what is it that I want the students to be able to do, what fits with what I'm teaching them right now and find opportunities within your day to provide some soft skill, skill instruction. So because it's not explicitly in the curriculum, it often gets put on the back burner, which is probably why when they end up going into the, the professional world, they're not as strong as they could have been. You know, they struggle yeah. through college even, they struggle just, just on day-to-day -day life, you know, it's, and it's unfortunate because we need to be teaching them while they're in school. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I'd, li I'd like to say something about that. Uh, two things. One is that there's a difference between teaching skills or what I'll use, uh, soft skills, or what I'll call for the moment values that are not that, and by values, I, I mean those things that are important to us in this environment. So if we, yeah. I, I will start a, cla uh, a class even with adults and say, I wanna set the tone of a learning community, not a classroom where we are all learning from each other. So I'm setting a value. But it's not a mm. cultural value or a mm. religious belief or a more that is you know, culturally a value. It's a value for what are the rules of the road or behaviors or how we expect people to interact, you know, here. Yeah. And I think that we don't, we often assume that people either share those values, sort of pick them up at home or unaware, but they sort of assume or, or they'll write them on the board and that they'll have the same meaning for other people, but they don't. Yeah. A simple thing like respect. You know, if I ask uh, people, do you have to earn the respect of others? Or is respect something that's just given to you as another human being? Half the class will answer one way and half the class will answer another. I can't, yeah. I cannot necessarily um, uh, say which is right or wrong, even though I have my own personal belief, but at least people need to be aware that not everybody has the same interprets those values in the same way. The other thing yeah. is, I think that we often, and it, it, this is a very difficult role for, children, for teachers, because what I see, and maybe it's from my own experience growing up, or you know, my, my own life experience, or what I see, um, or my point of view, so I'll say right off the bat, it may be a biased answer, but I see too many children who suffer from trauma or yeah. from what I call adver overcoming adversity. And so what happens is that those children's brains are just physically not wired in the same way that other 
kids' brains are wired. And so we don't really necessarily, I mean, teachers can't be everything, you know, they can't be school psychologists. They can't, yeah, look how much we're asking them to do. Um, yeah. And yet that changes the dynamic and changes the ability of that child to learn or that child to speak up or how that child reacts to, you know, uh, pleasing the teacher or what have you, losing their temper, a short temperedness, feeling threatened, fear, whatever. So, and, and this problem of dealing with adversity, especially I'm thinking of it in a COVID situation, is becoming greater and greater, not lesser and lesser. And True. so, um, you know, I really, really worry about that. And again, you cannot expect teachers to be doing it all. And yeah. so that, that, that's, that's a real problem for me. So I will say, though, it's interesting you say that teachers can't do it all, though we feel we can do virtually anything. Um, oh, right. <laughs> but, you know, many schools have been training teachers lately in trauma-informed classrooms and how to have one. And simply even teaching us things like, you know, the, the typical writing assignment when you come back from a, a vacation is, what did you do during vacation? And then that is not being trauma-informed. You don't ask students about what they didn't, you know, what they did because it might spark something. Yeah. So it's interesting because it causes you to think about their experiences when they're not with you very differently. However, that does not mean that we shouldn't address some soft skills that are happening in the, the building. So like, uh -huh. for instance, you know, if I talk about specifics, you know, we're talking like time management, right? Teachers often, let's face it, a student didn't get, turn in an assignment on time. The first thing that the teacher says is, well, I'm very disappointed in you. You know, I'm, it's going to lose points. Get it to me soon. You know, even if they, you know, that's if they're flexible. There are some teachers, of course, that aren't flexible and are like, that's an automatic zero. You know, so it, it depends yeah. on the teacher's philosophy. As opposed to when you are teaching the soft skill and instead of saying that I'm disappointed, you say, okay. So what could we have done differently to see if we could have had this turned in on time? And then the student will often tell you, well, this happened and this happened and this happened. And you say, well, when did you start? Let's start yeah. there. And they're like, well, I didn't start until last night. And you're like, well, that might be it. So here's what I want you to do. The next time I give you an assignment, I want you to immediately create a schedule. How long do you think the assignment's gonna take you? Okay, so today I'm going to start brainstorming. And then I want yeah. you to share that schedule with me. And I'm gonna help you to make sure that we don't end up in the situation again. Because life happens, let's face it. There are things that are gonna go wrong. But if we set ourselves up at the beginning to make sure that we can finish the project, then, yeah. then we're gonna be more successful. That's teaching a soft skill, as opposed uh -huh. to just being like, well, next time make sure you turn it in on time. That's not teaching it. That's that's expecting yeah. a child to just naturally understand this concept of time management. And there are tons of adults who don't under, don't understand time management. So how can we expect that out of a five year old? That's just, just crazy. <laughs> yes, and in a way, in a way, what you were just describing was the way I was talking about. It's the same process with adults. Yeah. So you know, I think what you're sort of getting from this is. It works when you're young and it works when you're older. It's just that the 
complexity or how you manage it is different. But I'm wondering, Melanie, whether you see your approach as being the sort of modern pervasive approach or whether we're still with the, you know, strict disciplinarian. It's hard. It depends on teacher philosophy. And unfortunately, if you're hired to be in a classroom as the teacher, you get to run your classroom how you see fit. Um, and as long as it goes with your division norms and your principles are okay with it, then, then your philosophy fits in that room. You create your rules, you create your procedures, you create your expectations, um, and yours might not look the same as the person next door to you. And so it, it's a little confusing for children because, you know, somebody might be t expecting one thing from them. And let's say we're in a secondary world and then they go to another teacher and there's a whole nother set of expectations in a new room. It's, it's just a lot of information for kids to take in and they don't really know how to get these soft skills and to understand them. But what I hope teachers will do is instead of looking at soft skills as of my, my rules, I've created rules in place, you must follow them, that's it. Um, that disciplinarian approach, and instead they lead towards the conversational approach where they understand that these are children, they are people, that they have a life, that things are flexible and that they change and we have to be flexible with them. And that by simply having a conversation with a child, we're gonna help them move leaps and bounds as opposed to saying, no, it's gotta be my way. That's it. They're not going to grow from that because yeah. they're going to go to the next teacher and the teacher will have their own set of rules. So they're not growing. They're not getting better. It requires the conversation. And unfortunately, right now, I think a lot of teachers, because they are juggling so many different hats, they are trying to make sure they get through content. They are feeling a lot of pressure from, you know, needing federal funding. So they need to make sure that the kids know a certain amount of content by a certain time so that they do well on a test. You know, there's a lot of pressure that comes with that. So the first thing that unfortunately goes is that conversation about the soft skills because they have to leverage the content, which is where we get the federal funding. You know, so it's yeah, unfortunate because that does impact the, the child developmentally in understanding how, do, how am I creative? How do I manage my time? How do I communicate with others? How do I function on a team? How do I problem solve? What does my work ethic even look like? Um, do I have a growth mindset? Do I understand that I'm struggling with this now, but I won't struggle with it in the long run? These are yeah. all paramount to their development. And yet it's the first thing that is taken out when we run out of time. Uh, Melanie, do you get enough freedom to introduce new uh, tools or manipulatives as part of your teaching uh, process? Or is that again controlled by what you're supposed to do in a classroom? So we have a curriculum, God bless. we have a curriculum, our division has created our curriculum um, and the expectation is that you follow it. You can add to it, but at a minimum, you are expected to follow that curriculum. Okay. Right now, while we're virtual, a lot of teachers are finding pushback on adding anything extra because we don't want to add extra pressure to families during this trying and hectic, crazy time. But typically yeah. in the classroom, you could add extra pieces. And what I'm noticing right now is we're having to adapt the curriculum so that students can have the same or a similar experience 
from in the classroom to online. So you mentioned manipulatives, right? Well, think about COVID era, right? And all of our manipulatives that the kids would usually touch, they can't touch because if they do, then it's contaminated. And now the teacher also has to be a, come a custodian and clean all these things before the next yeah. student touches it. So instead, what we're doing is we're adapting. So we've used some programs um, in order for the kids to still have the little chip cards to move with sounds, um, where they still have the, the sort type activities where they have little pieces of paper and they separate them into the piles. Um, we still have little games where, you know, there will be a question that comes up and they have to get the correct answer. So we still have these things, but we've had to adapt a lot for COVID teaching, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, what about you, Professor? And how do you think COVID has, I, I mean, the biggest aspect of it is it, it was unpredictable, right? No one thought suddenly come March, everything's yes. going to shut down and you're going to be at home and you've got to do everything that you did at your workplace at home. How does that um, sea change that happens almost overnight uh, affect the way that uh, teams perform? Well, um, huh. this it's sort of a funny question because what goes around comes around in the sense that um, I, in an earlier life, I was once the, uh, believe it or not, the, uh, the president of the International Society of Flexible Work Arrangements. Who even knew there was such a thing? And, uh, and at the time, we were... Uh, talk, uh, this was a very big issue. How could people work at home and be productive? We won't see them. We won't watch them. They'll waste time. They'll be watching soap operas instead of working, what, playing with their kids, running errands, whatever. And yeah. uh, how can we judge performance? And all of these things were like major issues, let alone as a, as a maths person. Uh, here in the U.S., uh, the biggest uh, problem we had was uh, it was the accounting systems because there had to be one paycheck for each employee. So yeah. therefore there was, we couldn't do basic fractions and figure out, you know, you could have two checks for one job if each person was doing a half of a job. You know, once we overcame that problem, which took months, by the way, of reprogramming, we, we yeah. finally were able to figure out how to do job sharing. That said, um, teams, work quite well, just as well, if not better, uh, when they are working um, virtually as they do together, because there's a certain pressure around time. Well, let's assuming you can get through the 10 minutes of everybody, can you hear me? Can you hear me? Are we on? You know, all that stuff. That seems to be, you know, slowing down a little bit, but we still have some of that. But for the most part, um, you know, people people can move on to the next thing. So they're more, I, I think that teams are a little bit more effective in terms of time management and not so much chit chat. You don't feel the need to fill the space or the air, you know, sort of, and everybody is waiting for their kid to start crying or the dog barking or the doorbell or whatever. And so, you know, uh, people are not, I don't think they're doing all of that. So I think the issue with teams, instead of, it's not so much they can't see each other face to face, they can. Uh, 
they can, uh, uh, you, I think we now have as more tools than we need to, to be able to back channel talk, vote, you know, draw, share, you know, uh, whiteboards, et cetera. But what I still think we have the same fundamental problems that keep going back to communication and with everybody thinking they're on the same page when they are not. And yeah. everyone is convinced that they know exactly what the problem is, exactly what other people are thinking, exactly the same thing. And mm -hmm. in my experience, it's almost zero that that happens and that really everybody needs to get to that level of, I call it, what are we here for? You know, what are, what are we, just something really basic, what are we doing? And as you go around the room, you hear people's slightly different view, but that slightly different view could take everybody down a different path, waste a lot of time. And you have to keep doing that at the beginning of each team meeting, because what happens is, again, people don't just uh, finish Monday at 10. The next meeting is Tuesday at 11. Well, things have happened in between that time. And they've also thought more about it or gotten more information, whatever. So you have to do that kind of communication a heck of a lot more than most people realize in a meeting. Yeah. And to get to real clarity and say, almost like the, opto you know, the optometrist, do you mean this or do you mean that? Do you mean this or yeah. do you mean that? And that could be a problem of English where a lot of words sound the same, mean similar things. Yeah. Or depending on your um, line of work, if I'm uh, a lawyer, I say execute. But yeah. obviously, if I have another profession, execute may mean something else entirely. Or it could just mean sign it. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So there's this problem, uh, and also sizing project. A project, you know, could be you know uh, this big. Gantt charts and code and all of that. And it could also mean, you know, back of an envelope, you know, yeah. or buying a rug or something like that. So people have very different mental models of what's going on. And when you are virtual, it doesn't help except if you can use side chatting to save yeah. a little time and move that along. But I'd say if I was going to correct one thing, I would time bound meetings and I would only start with what are we here? What are we doing here? And what are we going to decide? Yeah. And what will we live to next time? We try to pack way too much in and anything that is called a status report is better off left for another vehicle, but definitely yeah. That's a way of dealing with boredom, I guess, Melanie. That's where everybody has to live. <laughs> Maybe that's <laughs> what we're training them to do, get through it. So so I think here again, teams just learn, need to learn. And I think virtually they have a much better chance of it, actually, than they do in person. You know, it's interesting because I'm thinking about what you're saying. And uh, I definitely feel like in schools, COVID is making things a lot more complicated. You know, it, it's hard because, you know, I hear that you're talking about narrowing it down to one thing you'd fix. And the problem is 
there's just so much to fix, you know, in the education world being affected by COVID. Um, you know, it's interesting because on March 13th here in Virginia, that, that was the day, it was, it was Friday the 13th, that should have told us something. We literally <laughs> shut down and, uh, and the way that we, the only term we can use to describe it was we went into emergency teaching, um, which is not real teaching, you know, it was a, how do we fill this void? What do we do? What do we find? How do we make things? How do we share things? How do we get kids on computers because they might not have computers? What if they don't have Wi-Fi? What if they just go missing? Like, how do we deal with this? And that was emergency teaching. But in September, when we went back for our school year, we actually were virtual teaching. It's very different. These are two things that are, are very big distinctions here. Um, yeah. And, you know, virtual teaching, we had a plan. And so it's hard because a lot of times, you know, we talk about being virtual with people, right? Well, in education right now, what we're trying to say is we're face to face with people. Just because we're not in the brick and mortar, you know, we're still face to face. This counts as face to face teaching. It's uh -huh. just not in-person teaching. So, yeah. and it's hard because also it goes into this, this part of, can we require students to share their, their face during a Zoom meeting or a you know, Google Meet meeting or whatever platform you're using? Um, or is it you know, a matter of privacy? Maybe they don't want you to see what's in their home. So a lot of students won't show their face. I don't know about you, but when I don't show my face in a meeting, typically I'm doing 10 other things and I'm not showing my face for a reason. And odds are I'm not giving it my entire attention. So what I found as an accountability piece for myself is I always show my face in the meetings because in all honesty, it's the only way that I know I'm, I'm paying attention. And yeah. so I find it very hard to think about our students who are not being required to show their face when we're also calling it face-to-face because -face, then that's face-to-screen. Like I, I can't even see you to tell if you are engaged, to tell if you understand what I'm telling you. I mean, in the classroom, I use your face often to tell me, do I have to go back on something? And now I'm not yeah. getting that feedback. Uh -huh. So I think it's also important when we say that we're face-to-face, -face, that also means all of the students are showing on their camera their actual face. You know, because otherwise it's still virtual. If a kid is, you know, just showing the screen, then that would be virtual to me. And that goes back to that emergency piece. So I think it's important to see those distinctions and the value of each. The other piece that I find hard in the COVID era of education is these two terms that we come down to, which is having compassion for our students, but also having accountability. And it's yeah. almost like the way that we're dealing with these two terms is if we're being compassionate to our students, it means that we're giving them all of these opportunities, but we're yeah. also not holding them accountable. It's, it's like we're giving one and taking the other away. And if we don't have accountability for them, how can we actually say that they're learning? Because if yeah. we're being compassionate and saying, you have, you know, you didn't sign in, but it's okay that you didn't sign in. You can go ahead and do the past nine weeks worth of work in this one week, even though student B has been struggling every single week and has put so much thought and effort. How can I say that this, this, these are two equivalent situations? Yeah. I understand being caring and being compassionate to everyone's given situation, but you know it's also hard because we have to remember we have to hold them accountable 
our grades are actual legal documents that go to the next grade teacher and tells them, did they master this content? If I look at a student's you know, grade book, previous grade, that tells me something about how they're doing with my content. So you know, yeah. we can't really change those grades just because we wanna be compassionate in COVID either. They're, they need yeah. to still be held accountable. So it's, see, it's a I, very complicated thing for, for education. Extremely <laughs> so. And you know, that, that really um, brings to mind uh, a very interesting point, which is that a, a classroom is not a team. Not in that same sense as we no. four are a team <laughs> at this very minute. You know, we each have a role. We each yeah. are here for a reason. And a goal, a stated goal. We have a beginning, a middle, an end, and we're done. We will know whether we're successful or not. But in a classroom, you know, first of all, the team members, the students, have very little control over their own lives and yeah. and what's going on. And the environment, instead of being controlled within the classroom, is now in 30 different environments. You see? So so when I'm so I think that's an important distinction and it makes it makes me really um, uh, first of all very admiring of any teacher who's who's going through all of this I, I can't even imagine how how they do it to be honest but um, but I think that's where the people who are in charge are adults who work in government or in school districts or boards who yeah. are who are not taking the context into a, account, and yeah. um, you know, and and what's available, so that, for example, if we were a team of ditch diggers, we wouldn't be very effective online, you know. But if we're a team of presenters, no problem. So, yeah. but if you're a team of learners, who all are learning, you know, you have so many moving parts. Um, and and you do actually have a life and death kind of situation, you know that that's very that's a whole different ball game than somebody who has to work from their dining room table because they don't have their own office. You know, uh, we're much more forgiving of of that kind, you know, that kind of thing. So um, uh, I I just wanted to make that distinction that that a team is a teacher in a that's not the team. So it's interesting because as a teacher, we would talk about our classes as being learning communities. And so to us, it is a team. And the stronger the team is, um, the, the more powerful it's going to be together, the more we'll learn. Sure. However, I think what the teams that have actually become the strongest during this crazy time, 2020, um, is actually the, the team that is more of the village that's raising this child, right? It kind of goes back to that old saying, it takes a village to raise a, a child. Yeah. And I feel like the kids, in some classrooms, I won't say all, in some classrooms, I'm noticing that the connection with the parents and the guardians and the classroom are becoming stronger. Like yeah. they, they are so reliant on us and we're so reliant on them to support this young child that we're getting closer. Now, the reason why I'm saying it's working in some classrooms is because some classrooms are using, or some teachers are using the tools available to mask their phone number 
or whatever it is so that they can make sure that they're communicating regularly with parents. They're using all these sites that are out there to make sure the communication is strong. But then there yeah. are some teachers who they're not using that and they're relying on email, one mode of communication, which that's never going to work. You know, yeah. it's one of those, I find phone calls are extremely helpful and most teachers will say the exact same thing. And, but we're also told professionally, you're not to give out your personal phone number to parents because, yeah. you know, then you're liable, the conversation that happens and becomes a whole legal conversation. But reality is now that I'm not in my classroom, I need to still talk to the parents. The only way I'm going to do it is if I can use these softwares that are out there to mask my phone number. And so then I can have a professional line still be available to me. Yeah. I'm comfortable doing that. There are some teachers who aren't, but that communication with the parents, that's the team. That's the mm -hmm. piece that we're seeing. Can we get the kid online? Because I'm sure if internationally, that's a huge feat. If you can just get them on the computer, can I get them to show their face? Huge feat. Can I get them to turn in their assignments? Great. Yeah. It requires a lot behind the scenes so that when you show up for your class, your face-to-face -face meeting with the students, you've already done all of the work with the teams behind the scenes to make it yeah. this be the product. Yeah. Uh, my, my next question is going to be slightly heavy. Uh, it ties into everything we've discussed now, right? And going back to teamwork, considering the current, uh, and because we are, now the whole globe is so connected, uh, you know, we know what's happening in USA, you guys know what's happening in India. Do you think we can use game-based uh, learning to solve socioeconomic problems, to solve, uh, uh, to understand political landscape better, to solve climate change crisis? Do you think that that is possible? I feel like it, it, it would be a great way if you used simulators or some sort of product like that so that people could start thinking about how can they deal with these very big issues? You know, you can look at what's working in one part of the world and simulate it in your own. And it doesn't mean that it's going to work there, but can you see what could happen? What problems could stem from that? I mean, you know, here we're talking about critical thinking and creative thinking and communication and collaboration and all of these things. And it comes back to it. And, you know, the games are what pull it all together. This ability to, connect with people all around the world, to use my thinking, but also to understand that somebody else who maybe I've never met before also has a whole lot to bring to the table and value. And that us bringing both of our brains together is going to make a better product in the end or a better solution in the end. About realizing that if I'm always dealing also with the same people, my small box of people that are in my classroom, I'm probably not going to get anything out of the box. So connecting to people in other parts of the world are going to be huge. I would know that there would be students here in Virginia alone who would love opportunities to solve these problems because our kids are, are wise. They see what's going on. As much as we like to think that they're focused on their, their phones and their video games and their own personal life, they understand. And most of them right now are talking about how COVID is scary. They're not talking wow. about, you know, the fact that, you know, they're upset that their video game didn't work. They're talking about, you know, mom, dad, why do we have to wear masks when we go out in public? You know, yeah, it's, yeah. 
you know, if my grandmother's going into the hospital, is it because they have COVID and, and are they going to live? These are the things that they're thinking about. They care about the world. They really do. Yeah. But are we, as the adults, giving these kids the opportunity to try and fix it? Because at the end of the day, when they turn 18 in the States, they inherit our problems. Hate to say this. We're giving them the world. We try to make it better for our children. But no matter what, when we're done, we pass it on to them. And the hope is that they'll make it better for their own children and so on and so forth. So we have to also, while they're kids, give them an opportunity to try and play and think about these problems that are going on that they already are aware exist in the world. Yeah. Yeah. I hope I answered well, your question. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I yeah, I think I feel even stronger about it than that. I really felt as soon as uh what we are I guess we used to call web 2.0, right? You know, really making the internet really industrial strength, shall we say. You know, just even to get to that level, we had such a huge opportunity yeah. to be able to not only shrink the world, but be able to get to know it's the only thing that leads to peace in among people is if they become friends with others uh, who are different from themselves. That is the only way Arab and Israeli children, African-American children are not the same as people who are from islands and happen to be black. You know, we, we um, Indian, Hindu, I mean, I'm sure it's the same. And, and you have so many more different uh, differences yeah. as a country being so much larger and all. Um, even East-West, even the differences between Virginia, where Melanie lives, and Princeton, New Jersey, where I live, very, very different. Yeah. But where I, what I think is that um, there's no question in my mind that we are not taking nearly as much advantage. If anything, unfortunately, in my mind, I see us all becoming a little too nationalized. And yeah. and, 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 and that's where I really see the problem, because... Long term, again, if our goal is to be relevant, resilient, and 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 be able to grow, you know, lead a sustainable world, um, then we we can, none of us has the answers. We can really gain by talking this way. If I didn't understand your language, there'd be nothing that would inhibit having closed captions, so I could understand in my language or you could understand in mine right away we wouldn't have yes. them little people whispering to us you know and we could enlarge it and a really good example of this that i always use just out of context um, of learning is uh, a group that i i really like called playing for change and the concept behind playing for change is that uh the idea was to that that music brings people together, yeah. and so uh, a guy started this in Venice, California. Ran down when he heard somebody playing um, uh, a, a song, uh, "Stand by Me," and this guy must say, sings 
you know, he's sort of a known character down by Venice Beach playing Stand By Me. Somebody came quickly, recorded him, and then he went to maybe 60 different people all over the world and then brought him together so it's a unified piece of yeah. singing this song. And you can look him up on, on YouTube or whatever. And, um, and it's very powerful to see yeah. so many people who are absolutely in tune, you know, one note to the next, picking up. And it's, it's extremely, it shows you really when people can start to break down these barriers, how much can be solved. And when we start to see that people are more the same than they are different, regardless of religion or economic status or any other way you'd like to identify them. Uh, as long as you have people who care, that yeah. is what I think matters. People who care enough to do something about it. They can. Yeah. They may not be able to do all, but they care enough to do a little part. Yeah. And I think as long as you have that, me measuring that with matching that with technology, we would be really way, way, way ahead. You know, it's interesting, though, I think about the little ones, though, right? And when we think about kids, we often, you know, we tell kids when you get older, right? And we don't think that that phrase is damaging. But the reality is a lot of kids don't understand. They can do things right now. Yep. So I see value in introducing a game where you could give them the opportunity to see that they could make a difference. They could improve things in order to spark that in them to realize, wait a minute, I am only seven years old. Here I was able to do it on a game. I noticed the same problem in my community. Well, let me see if I can actually make this happen in person. But a lot of kids, they need to experience it first in a safe setting like a game before they'll actually take it out and do it in a real setting in the world. You know, they, they don't know what the possibilities are until we've showed them the possibility exists. Right. It's an empowerment thing. It says, I, I, I don't always, I may have to wait for more, but I can certainly yeah. make a start. Yeah. And the reality is a lot of the young kids that I see going out, you know, they're in the news or whatever, because they've done something for their community. You also have to look at culturally who's in their family. What are they doing? Right. And if they're seeing an adult doing something for others, being compassionate and, and living a life of servitude to somebody else, something bigger than themselves, then they yeah. as a child will develop that in themselves as well. But if you don't have that role model in your household who's constantly going out and being a part of nonprofits or trying to go and feed the hungry or doing any of these things, how as a child are they supposed to consider that something that they can do you know if they don't see it they don't even know it's a possibility for themselves so i i personally think that a game for kids seeing that they could impact part team would cause a lot more of our students to actually go out in the community and fix things sorry Sajid, i just wanted to add a point here because of something really cool that happened during this lockdown so India had a huge problem where a lot of migrant workers, so workers who are there in cities, there was this mass exodus where they were moving from cities back to, you know, the rural heartland. Uh, were mm -hmm. they taking a lot of infection back? Um, you know, were they 
uh, going hungry. They didn't have, they haven't worked for maybe 30 days. They're mostly on daily wages. Um, are they really surviving? And um, there's a lot of talk, a lot of chatter. You know, is the government doing enough? Are people doing enough? The huge charitable organizations trying to keep them afloat. Um, there was this one particular um, game that actually came about, um, which was which was an online website that said that, hey, you be the migrant uh, worker. Let's put a series of um, uh, what do you call um, uh, metrics almost like, hey, I have three days worth of water. I have four days worth of food. I have 100 rupees with me. Um, and this is what I can do in order to survive. Will I end up surviving? Almost in every instance, um, the migrant worker couldn't reach back home. And um, in a way, that's that's a great way for a child to begin to understand, um, hey, you know what? I hear so much about this. I, you know, people are talking a lot about it, but this is the first time I'm experiencing what they experience. Uh, what does it feel like not to have water is something that any human can agree with. But the fact that you're in that situation where you really need to keep yourself afloat is maybe kids don't have that opportunity to do. And I thought that that really brought about, I mean, even as an adult, it began to make me think about, um, hey, you know what? These guys are really struggling. I'm happy to be at home. I get stuff, uh, you know, I get my groceries. I'm able to keep myself safe and I'm not going to contract the infection. But there's so many people out there who have to risk getting COVID just in order to survive. And that's yes. a dilemma you don't want to be in. And that is a core issue. I'm sorry, Melanie. You know, a game I'm thinking of um, that this reminds me of is when I was a kid and I played Oregon Trail. You remember that? Oh, song? gosh. Yeah, I used to teach Oregon Trail. Oh, my goodness. That's and, a long time. I think I may have the gold buckets. You ask anybody in the States who's about my age, they will know Oregon Trail. Like, and yeah. everyone died playing this game. Like, yes. There was no way you could make it across the country. Probably you died of like dysentery or something. Like it was some, <laughs> some sort of disease that was very common at the time, but it was so much fun. And I learned so much about the actual content because my goal was I was gonna win this time. I was going to make it and of course, I don't think I ever made it across the country on Oregon Trail. Never. But it reminds well, me of that. Maybe we can propose that the Congress can play this game. <laughs> or any other government official in, in any country. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah you know, I, th I think that's right. But I will tell you a little secret to the game. If you have to play a game in the corporate world, any of the survivor games, it's stay put till your mother finds you. <laughs> that's that's the that's the key. Oh, wait, Stay put. Sorry, Sajid. I thought that's an actual game. It is no, there are there desert survival. There are two of them that are very popular. <laughs> they used to be done a lot. Desert survival was one of the popular ones, and you'd I'd always be there with other people who were Boy Scouts or people who in the army who served in the army, and they're all saving, you know the knife, the flashlight, the whatever, and yeah. going off. And I'd say, wait a minute. Didn't any of you have mothers who said, if you get lost in a department store, just stay put till I find you? Yeah. And people yeah. would say, no, no, that can't be the answer. But turns out that's the answer. But yeah. it's but but seriously, I think that what most people do not understand is the level 
of adversity, the level of poverty, the level of uh, insecurity, and how pervasive this is in all of our societies worldwide, although I can't speak to Scandinavian nations or where, you know, there's a, a different setup altogether with a, with a um, you know, a, a secured living. But in any of yeah. the democracies, surely that is what's happening right now. And it's very dire. And if you have to make a choice between living, meaning eating, or risking COVID, you know, there's just a certain amount of days you can go before yeah. you're going to make that choice. So it's not like we all have equal choices. That is really a red herring. And what yeah. happens is that we let ourselves, again, be put off track from what yeah. the reality of the problem is to some sort of, you know, uh, just, just a distraction uh, of yeah. something else that is really not as important. So um, anything we can do to to improve that would go a long way in terms of solving just about any problem. Yeah. I, I think this has uh, been great. I love how we started off by saying that we all do not have the same attributes. And now, you know, we're ending it with we all do not have the same choices. And both of us, both of that makes us, you know, quite individual um, expression-wise. It allows us to express ourselves in a very individualistic manner. I think, I think that's 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 a great gaming terminology to start and end with. Also, <laughs> so we have passed two and a half hour mark. Uh, I'll, I'll ask one tiny question before we go towards the conclusion. Uh, are there any myths? that exist on uh, in your part of the world around gaming and learning together. I'll give you an example. For example, in India, uh, if you say, hey, you know what? Uh, here's a game. Your child will learn something through this or learn maths through it. Parents are like, oh, no, no. Games are for fun only. Uh, learning is serious. It needs to happen in the school or with a teacher, right? Uh, the concept of learning through play is now slowly picking up, but there's a lot of awareness that we are trying to create. What about you guys? I know in the States, it's the same exact misconception. It's that students can learn and play at the same time, that that's okay. Wow. Um, and in fact, you know, with our younger kids, that's how they first start learning at all is through role play. Um, I also think that a big myth is that if you give a kid a game to practice on, one of these softwares that exists, um, that the kid will naturally just intrinsically enjoy themselves and have a great time and learn. No, you still have to be a part of that. You still have a role. The kid will make mistakes and that's okay that they make mistakes. Don't let them continue to make the mistakes. Pull them, work with them, go over the, the content, review, remediate, send them back. And what you'll notice is the kids are more likely to enjoy the game and they're more likely to learn at the same time. So. Yeah. yeah, I think it's nomenclature. In a way, we're using the term game. Yeah. And yet, if it was called learning tool or I don't know, some other more sophisticated <laughs> word, perhaps yeah, yeah. we'd have more success. But I really can't, uh, I can't say enough about it. Because really, in real life, 
Most life that you lead live outside of a classroom. We are still continuing to learn and we're learning by gaming, by interacting with other people, by being asked to make choices, to be given certain amount of resources, whatever. And we are playing a game, if you will. Um, And that's how everyone learns. That's how babies learn. That's how every single person learns from another human being. So I think the biggest issue we have is really around nomenclature and about a mental model that says game monopoly, game shoots and ladders, game Barbie, game whatever games are, you know, uh, Mahjong, whatever, whatever game you think, um, dice, whatever. So um, actually, dice is a really great game for learning about odds (laughs) and statistics now that I think about it. But so I think it's really a question of uh, really broadening one's understanding about what gaming really is about, which is that it is the ultimate replication of what's happening yeah. and that adults and people who function in the world, and we're bringing that into the classroom as another mode for what already comes naturally to us when yeah. learning. You know, uh, another example, growing up, we were not allowed, in my house, we were not allowed to play card games just because it was associated with gambling. But then growing up, back when I was working uh, in Philadelphia with a financial firm, the first thing they taught us was poker because poker is all about probability, right? It's about minimizing your risk. And that's how they associate that with uh, finance and uh, uh, stock market. And that was such a game changer for me because I'm like, you know, why was I never introduced to all this? Because I thought maybe my uh, probability would have been at a different level by now. Uh, although I did pick up poker and I do enjoy it and I keep beating Venkat at times because I love the <laughs> Well, you'd always win against me because I do not have a poker face. <laughs> But yeah. Melanie is your game player. Melanie is a fantastic game player. So nice. I will say I, that. I also have to say playing games teaches a lot of important skills like, you know, communication. It teaches your ability to critically think through things. And it's also helps you to creatively think through problems. Um, yeah. But I think also one thing I, I want to impart to teachers is you know, you got to change the way that you view what you're doing in your classroom. You know, you, you got to get rid of the, this is the process that we learn in. We stand up and we lecture, students take notes, they go and they do some practice and then we test them. You yeah. got to change it because it's not working and that's not how the real world, wor- world works. You know, yeah. give them an experience, let them play a game, then go ahead and, and teach them based off the questions that they have and the discoveries that they've made. And then from there, Go ahead and reassess. And you can do that in a game setting. A game is an assessment. You know, their ability to critically think through it and solve the problems and make it to the end and be successful. They're using the content. They're using the information that you taught them. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be the scary sit down with a blue book and take a test method that, you know, we were brought up on. You know, you can play a game and that be the test. Because in life... You know, your tests are experiences just like games are. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that I hope, my hope is 
that as we learn more about neuroscience and how the brain really functions, yeah, I think that perhaps we'll see this field uh, change a little bit because frankly, um, not to be too harsh on on teachers of old, but you know the we had a lot less information about how synapses work <clears throat> and how information that comes through the eyes or the ears really travels through the brain. Yeah. Yeah. So hopefully we'll all learn a little bit more about that. So thank you. Yeah, Namaste. thanks. Thank you. You don't want to take of your Sunday. Um, <laughs> yeah, thanks for Sunday morning. All right. Thank you once again for joining us on a Sunday morning for you. And thanks, Ajit, for staying up a little way past your bedtime, I would say. <laughs> but um, really great insights about how skills work, how the mind works, how kids function in you know comfortable settings and in uncomfortable settings, how you know uh, professionals work, um, how COVID has changed things. And really where we're going with learning and development, training, what kind of skills are needed in the future. The five C's, I think, are something that we ourselves are going to focus on when we create games in the future. Sustainability is a huge issue as well. So I think um, this has been a great conversation. And we've learned so much that we can take away and kind of apply into all these products that we make. And really, thanks a lot for giving us your time and allowing us to pick your brains yeah thanks a lot thank you thanks for the opportunity and we wish you a wonderful show and a great success